Hello Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Patricia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in March in our Cosmic Diary. We're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies. It's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now the moon reaches first quarter on March the 2nd and it's a great time to look for craters on the moon. Using a pair of binoculars or a telescope, look towards the terminator. That's the boundary between the illuminated and dark parts of the moon as the shadows here that are cast by the crater walls make them stand out much more. On this evening, the moon will be in the constellation of Taurus, the bull, beside the red giant star Aldebaran, sometimes known as the star at the eye of the bull. Look towards the southwest in the early evening. This bright star can be seen from light-polluted skies, and if you give your eyes enough time to adjust to the darkness, you should be able to make out its red colour. By March 9th, the moon will reach its full moon phase. Look towards the southeast in the early evening to see it. This month's full moon will be a supermoon. In fact, one of several supermoons this year. Because the moon's orbit isn't a perfect circle, its distance from the Earth changes as it orbits the Earth. If the moon comes within 90% of its closest approach to the Earth and it coincides with a full moon or a new moon, we call it a supermoon. Due to its closer proximity, the moon can appear 14% larger and 30% brighter compared to when it's at its most distant. The April full moon will present the closest supermoon of this year, and because there are no official definitions about what constitutes a supermoon, some are counting the February and May full moons as supermoons too. The full moon will appear in the constellation of Leo the Lion and will be seen beside the second brightest star in that constellation, Denebola. The star's name is derived from the Arabic Deneb al-Ased, meaning the tail of the lion. Denebola is one of the three stars of the spring triangle asterism, a familiar pattern of stars along with Spica and Arcturus. However, in this asterism, some people replace the nebula with Regulus, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo. Now the last quarter moon falls on the 16th of March. Keep track of it over the next few days, as by the 18th it will appear beside Mars and Jupiter in the pre-dawn sky. And the following morning the moon will be closer to Saturn. Look to the southeast just before the sun rises to see this planetary buffet along with the moon over the course of these few mornings. Mars, Jupiter and Saturn are some of the naked eye planets and so are visible without the aid of binoculars or a telescope. They look like bright stars. Jupiter will be the brightest of this trio and Mars will have a reddish hue. Although they'll probably be easier to locate with the moon in proximity, the planets can be seen throughout the month, and by the end of March, Mars will sit closer beside Saturn than Jupiter. The March equinox occurs on the 20th of March. It's known as the vernal equinox in the northern hemisphere, and as the autumnal equinox in the southern. It marks the first day of spring, the vernal equinox, in the northern hemisphere, 
and the first day of fall or autumn, the autumnal equinox in the southern hemisphere. At the equinox, the sun will shine directly on the equator and there will be nearly equal amounts of hours of daylight and night throughout the whole world on this day. By March 24th, the moon reaches new moon and will mark the beginning of another lunar cycle. It's also when Mercury reaches greatest western elongation, meaning from our point of view on Earth, it will appear at its furthest point west of the sun in its orbit. This makes it an ideal opportunity to view Mercury before the sun rises. Even though Mercury is a naked eye planet, it's fainter than the others and will appear close to the southeastern horizon, so will still be a challenge to spot. The 24th also marks when Venus, the fifth and final naked eye planet, is at greatest eastern elongation, so it will appear at its furthest point east of the sun in its orbit. Again, this would make an ideal time to look for Venus, but in this case, look to the southwest just before sunset. Venus is much brighter and easier to spot, and at greatest eastern elongation, you'll have the longest opportunity to watch Venus as it sets over four and a half hours after the sun. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROGAstronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our Cosmic News. Welcome to the Cosmic News Story part of our podcast. Every month, Dara and I pick a story, so that it can be something that's broken in astronomy or in space exploration. We'll tell you that story and give you the opportunity to vote for your favorite story in our Twitter poll. And so this month, we're going to begin with you, Dara. So what have you chosen for us for this month? I'm really excited about this one because I feel like I am a bit of a, a space exploration kind of fanatic. It really excites me when we think about actually heading into space because a lot of astronomy does have to be ground-based. We can't necessarily get to everything that we want to explore. And so having things that help us explore by putting them into space is something that really excites me. So for this month, I've actually chosen something that is a bit of an ode. The idea that as one mission may be coming to an end, there's something else to look forward to. So I'm going to start off by talking about uh, NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard all about this telescope and after 16 years of studying the universe in infrared light the mission actually ended at the end of January and it's just an incredible feat what this telescope has done. It launched back in 2003 and it was actually named in honour of an astronomer called Lyman Spitzer. He actually promoted the idea or the concept of having telescopes in space back in the 1940s and who would have known then that, yeah. you know, a few decades later, we'd have actually sent people into space? Yeah, it's amazing to think, as you say, to propose it at that time, but then only towards the end of the 1950s, we started to embrace space exploration as, as well, at that point as this amazing window into the universe. And yeah, it's just, oh, it's amazing to think that people had these great ideas and that we could see them come to fruition. It absolutely is. And Spitzer isn't the 
only one of these kind of great observatories. So NASA has its four great observatories. So there's the Hubble Space Telescope, which I'm sure many of us know about. There's Spitzer, uh, which looks at infrared light. Uh, Hubble Space Telescope looks at visible, bit of infrared and a bit of ultraviolet light too. The Chandra X-ray and the Compton Gamma Ray Observatories. So altogether, this program with these four great observatories really demonstrate the idea that when you look at the universe using different types of light, you actually get a fuller picture of what's going on. With visible light, we can see some things, but there's actually objects out there in space that give off other types of light, and we can't necessarily see them with our conventional optical telescopes. So these four great observatories, including Spitzer, have really opened up the world of astronomy for us. So I thought I'd go through perhaps some of the things that Spitzer has achieved in its 16 years of operation. It studied comets and asteroids from within our own solar system. And some of these pieces of rock are the, you know, they're left over from the very beginnings of our solar system. So they give us an idea of perhaps what the early conditions in our solar system might have been like. Um, Spitzer also found a previously unidentified ring around Saturn. I'm sure lots of people have looked up through their own telescopes at Saturn and seen its awe, you know, awe-inspiring rings there. But actually there are a few other rings a bit further out from Saturn and a bit fainter that have more recently been discovered. And one of the rings that has uh, been discovered by Spitzer is called the Phoebe ring. It's actually the largest ring around Saturn, but it's more easily seen through infrared light. And that's because that ring, rather than the icy material that makes up the inner rings, the outer ring, that Phoebe ring, is actually made, we think, of dustier or rockier material. And it's called the Phoebe ring because it's likely that Phoebe, one of Saturn's moons, is being bombarded by lots of space rocks and so bits of it are breaking away. And that's what's creating this dust in that ring. And actually what they found is that dust is moving a bit closer and closer to Saturn. And it's the reason why uh, one of Saturn's moons is actually dark on one side yeah. and lighter on the other. You know what moon I'm talking about. Iapetus, yeah. Exactly. And for a long time, Iapetus remained a bit of a mystery. Why is it that one side of the moon is darker and the other isn't? It's likely now that it's from this Phoebe ring material. So what a huge discovery there. Um, Spitzer also studied star and planet formation. As planets are forming, they're actually growing very bright in infrared light. Dust is also very good at giving out infrared light so this makes it a great candidate to, to look at these objects that we're finding. Uh, it studied the evolution of galaxies from the ancient universe all the way to today again helping us kind of pin together the whole history of our universe. It's been a powerful tool for detecting exoplanets and characterizing their atmospheres too. We talk a lot about exoplanets on our podcast don't we and Spitzer is again looking in infrared light and therefore being able to detect these planets in their very early formation. It may be best known though Spitzer for detecting the seven earth-sized planets of the TRAPPIST-1 system and I know you've heard about this system Patricia what is it that sticks in your mind about this system? Does it have something to do with our search for an Earth-like planet, perhaps? It absolutely does. So this has uh, this star system, the TRAPPIST-1 system, has the largest number of terrestrial planets ever found around a single star. Um, and Spitzer has helped determine their masses and their densities. It actually studied this system for more than a thousand hours. Wow. So we've learned quite a bit about this system. Uh, so it's a seven-planet system that we found. 
There's only one other star system that we found that has the same number of planets as ours. Um, so that's the Kepler 90 system that we know has eight exoplanets around it. There's a star system called HD 10180, very aptly named, perhaps. It's thought that maybe it has nine exoplanets around it. But actually, two of them are still unconfirmed. And that's because as we're detecting exoplanets, it's not just the discovery of it. It needs to be confirmed. Yeah, we need that confirmation. Although people might see that as Spitzer's kind of greatest moment, I think one of the other things that Spitzer did, perhaps combined with the Hubble Space Telescope, is find the most distant galaxy that we've kind of know about. Um, So along with the Hubble Space Telescope, scientists were actually able to see the bright infant galaxy that's, uh, when we're looking at it, it's over 13.4 billion years ago. So it's roughly 400 million years after the Big Bang is where we're looking back to, to spot this very early galaxy. It's when the universe was perhaps around 5% of its current age. So we're talking about the most distant galaxy ever detected. So sort of an infant universe so to speak. Yeah. It is. Um, and again, it goes to show just, uh, you know, how powerful these tools that we put into space actually are to be able to detect things that are that far away that come from the earliest parts um, of our universe. Now, above Earth's atmosphere, Spitzer can detect those infrared wavelengths that we can't observe from the ground. So they are absorbed um, by the Earth's atmosphere, some of these uh, infrared light. And the telescope was actually placed into an Earth-trailing orbit. So it's in the same orbit as the Earth, but it sort of trails behind the Earth. And every year, it moves a bit further away from the Earth as well. That also means that it's being kept cool. It's not near the Earth where it's receiving the infrared light that's given off by the Earth. And so that puts it in a great position to be even more sensitive to the infrared lights trying to detect from space. In fact, when it was actually launched, it was the most sensitive infrared telescope that we had in space. Now, this telescope, even though it launched in 2003, its primary mission was due to end in about 2009. And that's because it had a coolant on board and that coolant would keep the instruments at an operational temperature. But after the coolant ran out... Spitzer carried on. Even though most of its instruments failed, there were still a couple that managed to be kept intact. And so it entered what they called the warm phase of the telescope's mission. So it continued to work. And actually, its um, end was actually predicted for 2018. And that's because that was when the James Webb Space Telescope was due to launch. And it would be observing the universe in infrared light. And so they would have stopped the operation of Spitzer. But since the James Webb Space Telescope has been postponed Postponed. several times, it's now due to be launched in 2021, so we've still got another year, Um, Spitzer was actually granted an extension to be carried out until 2020. Now, as it's moved further from the Earth in the same orbital path, but around the Sun, what's happening is the antenna pointing towards the Earth is having to point at kind of increasing uh, angles or higher angles to be able to communicate with the Earth. And that's actually causing more solar heating. So it's got a solar kind of protective front, but as it's angling to be able to communicate with the Earth, more of that telescope is exposed to the sun's heat. And so they've had to shut it off now because its kind of instruments are becoming non-operational. So after receiving 16 years of going around and detecting lots and lots of things that actually have had a huge impact today, We've unfortunately had to say goodbye to the Spitzer Space Telescope, but I want to salute it. It's been a huge, huge thing. And actually, 
with the end of the Spitzer Space Telescope, just 10 days after, there was the launch of a fantastic new mission, and that is the Europe and NASA's Solar Orbiter mission, which launched on the 9th of February. People may have heard of NASA's Parker Solar Space Probe. That launched about a year and a half ago, and when that launched, it was a big deal too. Venturing close to the sun is a huge deal, right? There are... Yeah big temperatures to deal with, getting it in orbit around the sun rather than completely just being grabbed in by the sun is another thing they, you know, the space scientists have to think about. So the Parker Solar Space Probe, it ventured very close to the sun. It actually penetrates through the sun's corona, which is the outermost layer of the sun. It's already passed within 11.6 million miles of the sun, That's really close. It is really close. The distance from the Earth to the Sun is 150 million kilometers. So just 11.6 million miles. Well, that's not very far from the Sun's surface at all. But that Parker Solar Space Probe is aiming for the closest approach of about 4 million miles, which is just mind-boggling to think that an instrument can get that close to the sun with that incredible heat and the solar radiation and still work. And it's hoping to achieve that closest approach by 2025. So we've got a few years to wait, but hopefully it'll achieve it. Now, Solar Orbiter that launched in early February, it won't do this. It's not going to go really, really close to the sun. But what it is going to do is get into an orbit where it's going to be able to see the poles of the sun. Ah. And that has never been done it's, before. Yeah. The poles of the sun have never really been imaged before. So that's sort of that is uncharted territory on, on in our studies of the sun because we obviously have a lot of spacecraft dedicated to to studying the sun, but they're never looking or able to see the that polar region in in detail. So I mean, this is really exciting, a new frontier in terms of solar studies it absolutely is most of the probes we have are in the sort of plane of our solar system and it is a great challenge to get a a probe to then kind of change its orbit so it's in a polar orbit instead one of the things that this probe has something new to it i guess is that even though it's not going as close as the parker solar space probe it's still getting close enough to the sun where it's going to be really hot so it is going to need a heat shield And the heat shield on this probe has an outer black coating that's actually made of burned bone charcoal. So it's alike to what's used in prehistoric cave paintings. It's actually made from like the burnt bits of animal bones, which I think is absolutely crazy that we can find materials here on the earth that we don't necessarily think could withstand heat, but can really help us in our exploration of space. Now that heat shield that's been developed with these burnt charcoal kind of bits from the bones of animals can actually withstand temperatures of up to 530 degrees Celsius. So that's pretty good going. Now it's different to the heat shield of the Parker Solar Space Probe. That's actually made of two panels of super um, heated carbon-carbon composites. And between there's a sandwiching layer of like a carbon foam, which is like 97% air. And that's the heat shield that's used on the Parker probe, but this is a a kind of new or a novel approach that's being used on the Solar Orbiter. Now the Solar Orbiter's heat shield actually has five peepholes in it. I love that word, peepholes. And that's where the scientific instruments will be able to take different measurements. And they're gonna be collecting different types of light again. So the X-rays, the UV light, the visible light, and many others. Now, nine of the 10 scientific instruments that are on this probe were actually made in Europe. Uh, the last one was made by the Americans, by NASA, and it actually launched from American soils too, from Cape Canaveral. 
it's going to need to use some gravity assists um, from the planet Venus and from ourselves, the Earth, to actually alter its path to the sun. So it's going to take a while to get there. Full science operations are due to begin around late 2021. So we've got roughly two years to wait. And then the first close solar encounter is likely to be in the year 2022. Uh, and then every half year following that, we should get some good results back. Now, looking at the poles is really important because that's where we've seen these huge, dark coronal hole structures. And they seem to kind of constantly shift or move. Now, these are the hubs for the sun's magnetic field, and we see that it flips its polarity every 11 years. Um, so anyone that looks at the sun and has noticed that things change on the sun, it usually coincides with this 11-year solar cycle. So these structures, these coronal hole structures, are where all the fast solar winds actually come from. So when those magnetic field lines break, parts of the sun's kind of outer atmosphere then flung out into space, these huge solar winds are sent out. Now we need to know, hopefully, from this probe, and it will be able to help us, how the sun affects our local environment here on the Earth, and maybe even Mars, if we're looking to kind of send humans there in the future to be able to explore for longer. It might also help scientists predict space weather. So if we're looking at how solar flares affect kind of the weather in space, um, that's really important because it disrupts our communication here on Earth. So we have to be very wary of it. And it's also certainly true that we have to understand that solar environment as well because we have to protect astronauts because we have some living on the International Space Station. And as you say, if we're looking at Mars, we're going to have astronauts traveling a very long distance to reach a planet. So it's very important that we can understand um, all these highly powerful and energetic events that come from our sun so that we can plan to protect these astronauts on their future Absolutely. missions. Absolutely. And the Earth is quite lucky in the sense we've got our atmosphere, we've got a protective magnetic field, but the International Space Station doesn't have that. Mars doesn't have yeah. that. And so we need to be wary of how the sun can definitely affect places like that. Um, I guess the last thing that it will help is the understanding of other star systems and clues to understanding the habitability of other planets that we find around other stars too. So that's pretty much my story. I know I've kind of combined two together here, but as the NASA Spitzer Space Telescope ends its mission after 16 years of incredible discovery of lots of different things in our universe, we've got the uh, solar orbiter to look forward to. And it's not going to be too long, a couple of years before we get some incredible images back of the poles of the sun, I don't doubt. And I think if just looking at the images that the Parker Solar Probe has returned already, they've been absolutely amazing breathtaking images and i'm excited and looking forward to the science that we'll be getting from that new solar orbiter it's so, incredible detail yeah. too so yeah definitely something to look forward to but i'm more looking forward to now is your story well interestingly i've opted for something that's close to home and it also does involve a spacecraft in fact one that you've spoken about and i've spoken about in previous podcasts as well. My story this month is celebrating an iconic image that was taken 30 years ago in February 1990. And to celebrate the anniversary of this image, NASA have actually remastered the image and released it so that the public can enjoy it. And even though it's been remastered, they've kept true to the original character of that image. And to see the remastered version, it's still as powerful an image now as it was when the original came out. I'm getting shivers in my a long body time ago. just thinking about this. And I think I know the image that you're talking about. You, you but... probably do. And um, 
Interestingly, this image is still to this day the farthest image of the Earth ever taken. And I suspect at this point you can probably guess which image I'm talking it's about. The pale blue dot. Yes, the iconic pale blue dot image taken by the Voyager 1 spacecraft. And of course, many people associate the words pale blue dot with Carl Sagan. And if we're going to talk about this image, we have to talk about Carl Sagan. So Carl Sagan was an extraordinary individual and a brilliant astronomer and science communicator who achieved a lot. You just have to read through any biography of Carl Sagan and it's impressive what he did. I'm going to highlight just a few of the things, but just to provide some context on, on this amazing man. As a doctoral student, he offered a solution to the mystery about the planet Venus. Because at the time he was doing his PhD, it was widely assumed that Venus had a warm and wet climate which could support life. But Sagan calculated that the dense carbon dioxide atmosphere that you find there at Venus was actually able to sustain an extreme greenhouse effect, which would mean that the surface temperature would be hot enough to melt lead and therefore no life would be possible on the surface of Venus. It was only many years later when the pioneer Venus spacecraft would actually confirm that. Wow. But as a PhD student, he had that solution to that puzzle. And then again, uh, a couple of years later, Sagan, along with his first graduate student he was working with, James Pollock, actually solved another major mystery in our solar system. And that mystery had to do with the planet Mars because Mars was known to undergo these, what they call these seasonal waves of darkening, where if you looked at Mars, it would get darker and then it would get lighter again. Now, again, at that time, the most popular explanation was that those observed changes were actually due to seasonal changes of vegetation on the planet. Now, I know right now everyone's going to say, what? But this all has to do, of course, with the famous canals on Mars, that idea that there were people living on Mars and that there were canals feeding water and that the darker regions and all the changes that had been observed. And that's actually where that title came from. So it came from a long time before we started proper observations of Mars. So this is going back to the late sort of 19th century. They observed this. They were trying to understand what was going on. And it's interesting by the time when Carl Sagan was doing the studies that that idea was still there, that there was vegetation on the planet Mars. But Sagan and Pollock actually instead suggested that one possible scenario for what we were seeing was in fact that there were seasonal winds on Mars that were actually blowing light-colored dust onto the sort of the darker highland rock and then just blowing it off again. And this explanation was later confirmed by the Viking orbiter that was sent to study Mars. I feel like Sagan is like some sort of like he can predict the future. He knows what's going to happen. But it's incredible that he can use the ideas, the basic ideas of kind of science, but also that creativity that he must yeah. have had to be able to come up with these novel ideas yeah. too. At the time he was doing this, he was also playing a leading role in the US space program. 
So he was already involved in NASA from the 1950s, and eventually he became a visiting scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And while he was there, he helped to design and manage the Mariner 2 mission to Venus, the Mariner 9, Viking 1, and Viking 2 missions to Mars, the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 missions to the outer solar system, and the Galileo mission to Jupiter. That's quite a list to have under your belt, isn't it? It's extraordinary. Obviously, he designed and um, managed these missions, but with the Voyager mission, he was actually a member of the Voyager imaging team, basically being responsible for deciding what images should be taken with the spacecraft, because you don't just point and click randomly. There are usually specific objectives you're trying to achieve and there'll be targets and you have to structure your program bearing in mind you have limited resources on your spacecraft and of course things could go wrong at any point so you have to make sure you achieve certain mission objectives but he came up with the idea to use the cameras on one of the two voyager spacecraft to actually image the earth And with the spacecraft being so far away from the Earth, he realized that the images would actually not show much. But that's precisely why he and other members of the Voyager imaging team wanted that image to be taken. But it was not easy to convince NASA to do this. I can imagine. We want to take a picture of the Earth. You're not going to be able to see it very well, but we want to do it nonetheless. But... I can imagine why it would have been really hard to convince NASA, but at the same time, anyone that looks at that picture now and truly understands what that picture is trying to show would really understand why he and other people really wanted this image to be taken. Yeah, and he and his team worked hard and they managed to persuade NASA that this was an image that needed to be taken. In fact, what they were able to do was come up with the idea of taking a solar system portrait. So taking a photo of every planet. And so on February 13th, 1990, Voyager 1 warmed up its cameras. Because you can imagine you're out in the frigid regions of space. So now you have to take a photo. So we have to warm up all of those electronics just to get them good enough and warmed up enough so that we can take these images. And at that point, Voyager 1 was actually hurtling out of our solar system and was beyond Neptune. Voyager 1 was about six billion kilometers from the sun at that point and then it received commands from mission control to look back towards the planets and towards the sun and that's when it started to take its images because it also took an image of our sun but the image of the earth was taken on february 14th so it was a valentine's day image (laughs) and in fact that image of the earth was taken just 34 minutes before the spacecraft powered off its cameras forever in order to conserve power. Because as you mentioned, for example, Spitzer, you had coolant, so that determined also the the lifespan of the spacecraft. But Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, you have limited power. And so they were going to power off the cameras forever because they achieved everything they wanted to achieve in terms of imaging the solar system, and they wanted to continue to make observations but you have to always compromise. So they shut down the cameras to be able to divert power to other instruments. Now, even though that image was taken on February the 14th, because of that distance involved, because of 
how you know that information is transferred because they couldn't transfer enormous amounts of data this is a very small data stream and it actually took all the way until may of 1990 for all of that image data to eventually be sent back to the earth so that's how long it took to send all that now i, and I know again for comparison we're like oh but it takes so quick to send a message but i was just thinking <laughs> the same thing we're so used to you know clicking buttons on our browsers and being taken to the next page we want to in flashes but here we're talking huge distances and you know huge scales where back then as well we're talking about you know the 1970s where technology probably wasn't as great yeah. as it was now and so there was more limited computer power back then as yeah. well and that's certainly true and so of course you can imagine everyone's patient we wait for the data to come down data processing begins and then contained within a series of images is the earth when Carl Sagan unveiled this image I think at first everyone in the public must have thought what you know, can't quite see anything because if you have a look at this image, lying in the image within a scattered ray of sunlight is our Earth. So incredibly tiny that it's just a point of light less than a pixel in size. And when Cole unveiled this image to the public, he said, this is where we live on a blue dot. How poignant. That is probably just a simple but moving statement. His book, Pale Blue Dot, is actually inspired by that iconic image. And that's why those three words are now etched into history. It's from that association, this image. And of course, for anyone listening to this, if you have not seen that image, please do. It's moving and powerful. I just want to add a little bit onto this because... So it's a kind of nice story of how this continues and how Carl Sagan inspired many people because in 2013, as part of the Cassini mission, lead imaging scientist Dr. Carolyn Porco and her team took an image of the Earth but as seen from Saturn. Now, Carolyn had actually worked as part of the Voyager 1 imaging team with Carl Sagan and she wanted to create another image as iconic in that, but in partly a tribute to Carl Sagan. But what they did, which was really great, was NASA actually encouraged people around the world to go out on the day. So they told everyone on July 19th, head outside, look up at the sky and smile and wave. Everyone did that. And Cassini snapped its image of the Earth on that day. And that image is now known as the day the Earth smiled. I didn't know that's where it got its name from. So I know that the image, so it's the one where Saturn's caught eclipsing the sun and you can make out, you know, Saturn's diverse ring system and somewhere in the midst of that picture, there is also the Earth. And it is called The Day the Earth Smiles, but I never knew that was the reason why. So that's where that name came from. But here's where the story gets really interesting. In 1983, Carl Sagan wrote to the then administrator of NASA, Dr. James Biggs, and expressed his concern that one of the most promising objectives for future planetary exploration was being given insufficient priority by NASA. Sagan was talking about Saturn and its moon Titan. The response by NASA? NASA feels strongly that within the context of a balanced planetary program, we must return to Titan. To this end, NASA and the European Space Agency have agreed to study a possible joint exploration of Titan. 
And in the end, we did. And I'm pretty sure that Carl Sagan's letter had a big say in getting NASA to support the mission to the planet. And it makes me think that if he had not done that, we wouldn't have probably had Cassini, and then we wouldn't have had the day the Earth smiled. So even now, Carl Sagan is still having a profound impact in space exploration. And that pale blue dot, that iconic image, which will always be, I think, a fitting reminder of Carl Sagan and the amazing work that he did. That was such a beautiful story and what an inspirational man as well behind it all. And it's really nice that you delved into a bit of the history of Carl Sagan and, you know, why he is who he is and what he's done to achieve this greatness. But also uh, the little quirks that we've added on to at the end about, you know, the Cassini mission and how that might not have happened without the kind of forward pushing of Carl Sagan too. So there we have it, our two stories for this month. We're going to put our stories to the test on Twitter. So at the start of the month, you'll find our Twitter poll. You can vote for your favourite story. If we return back to last month's podcast, we had two different stories. We had the dimming of the star Betelgeuse, which uh, at current knowledge is still kind of dimming and changing shape, which is very unusual. We also had a story about the solar system's great divide and how that might have come about. We had 31 votes in total and it was a bit of a a hammering. So Patricia, well done in your story with the dimming of Betelgeuse that had a 77% win rate and then we had 23% for the solar system's great divide. Now who knows, next month we might be able to level up again but you've taken the lead for this month for sure. That does bring us to the end of our podcast but just before we go, if anyone does want to listen to any of the other podcasts we have we've got interviews with other space scientists we've got a few podcasts where we're interviewing astronauts so if you do want to check them out please do visit our soundcloud uh, account and you can also visit our website rmg.co.uk and have a look for our podcasts there but for now that does bring us to the end of our cosmic diary and news for this month we hope to see you on look up next month mm-hmm.